0: Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9? Or your, the chapters printed there on page 9 in your bulletin. We're doing a little series, short series on worship, and I'd like to just read through this, and then we'll talk about it for a few weeks, actually. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron... Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering. And an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dri- dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat in the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses the flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp then he killed the burnt offering and for Aaron's sons and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar and they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head and he burned them on the altar and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar then he presented the people's offering And took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people, and killed it, and offered it as a sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering, and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar, besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver... They put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people, and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted, and fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, Lord God, to move in our hearts now as we hear this word together and comfort us and change us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So what's been percolating in my heart that prompted this series as as a pastor is I think that in today's world, not just for you know, people we might meet outside the church, but even for a lot of us who are pretty you know, regular churchgoers, I think for a lot of us, worship in this world today really does feel like a detour, something you kind of pull off out of real life for. You know, It may be really meaningful to you personally. You may have a great experience in here. Uh, you might carry some of that glow with you for a while through your week. But, you know, outside, th- th- what's going on in here, I think all of us would, would, would feel like it's, it's really, really outside the flow of the real world life that we share out there with believers and, unbelie- non- believers and non-believers alike. I mean, Christians and non-Christians are out there living the world, and, they, you know, that's where the kind of so much of the intense action of life is. And, you know, we can pull off in here and kind of do our thing as Christians, but it's really outside the flow of kind of the real world and and what's going on in the real world. I think if you were to ask your neighbors, you know, people who are not Christians, you ask them, you know, what, what, what do they think of people who go to church? I suspect that a lot of them would probably say, you know, that's a thing for people who still, you know, even in the modern world, kind of feel like they need something more. You know, most of us can relate to, you know, at some time kind of feeling like, you know, is this kind of all there is? And, you know, some people just feel like they need something more in their lives. And, so, you know, that's what churchgoers are doing. They're going and getting there something more. And if they weren't, you know, at all patronizing, they'd probably say, you know, it's a lot of us. A lot of people, you know, have moments and they just feel like there's got to be more to life than this. But they would, I think what your neighbors would say is there are all kinds of ways to get that. You know, maybe for you it's going to a concert or it's, you know, doing yoga and meditation. Or, you know, maybe it's some, you know, online fan club you're a part of that really gets in touch with the deep things of some show you're all into. Or you know, whatever it might be. There there are a lot of apps to give life meaning, to give the iPhone of life meaning. Certainly nothing unique about the Christian church-going thing. And what I'm trying to do in this series is actually show that that way of thinking, that worship kind of feels like a detour from life, I actually want to show that that's exactly backwards. And I'm fixing to drop a pretty heavy word picture on you guys here, so kind of hang with me for a sec. I want to suggest something very different. I want to su- suggest and, and, and argue that Far from being a detour from real life, worship is, in fact, practice for real life. Worship is, I'm going to call it a rehearsal. You practice alone, you rehearse together. Worship is a rehearsal, here it is, of the deep music that reverberates and is meant to reverberate in all created existence. Let me say that again. Worship, we're doing in here, week by week, is we are rehearsing together the deep music that reverberates and God intends it to reverberate in all of created existence. You might be thinking, Ben, that is trippy. Well, it's true though. I mean, think about this. The cosmos (laughs) and everything in this cosmos, I was looking at a sunrise very early this morning as I was getting ready to preach this and, you know, looking out at the explosion of color into the sky the cosmos and everything in this cosmos including you as a something someone God has made everything in the cosmos reverberates with the music of God's presence and God's purposes I mean that sunrise this morning just shout it out to anyone who is up for it the earth is the Lord's and the fullness that it contains the world and everyone who dwells in it Everything that you encounter in creation, we don't notice this, but that doesn't mean it's not real. The fact that you aren't listening to music doesn't mean it's not playing. Everything in creation that God has made is reverberating with the deep music of God's presence. He is here, he, and, and, and his purposes. he is acting. That's the music of life. And of course, you know, there's, there's all these jarring dissonances created by human resistance to that music. There are sometimes stubborn silences. We just won't play along with the music. But nevertheless, despite all of those jarring dissonances and silences, this is going on. And there's this whole new movement the Bible talks about. You know, the music was exciting enough, but then all of a sudden there's this whole new movement that happens when Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus, that Spirit of God, that raised, you know, animated Jesus' dead body and raised him to life that Death can never touch again, and because he, he died our death and he was raised you know, for us, we really kind of rose with him. You know, The Bible says we, we actually came out of the grave. You know, Our death died, and we came out of the grave with him that day, and there's this whole new you know, musical movement now that is playing because God, through this Holy Spirit and this risen Jesus, he's going he's gonna to take this broken cosmos and put it all back together. There's just this whole other kind of symphonic thing that's happening now He's going to bring all things in heaven and earth back into harmony. And it's in that music of God's presence and purposes, it's in that music that we live and move and have our very being. And every creature you meet, whether they acknowledge it, whether they even want to think about it, whether they think the whole thing is stupid and superstitious or not, every creature you meet is living, moving, and has their very being in that music of God's presence and his purposes. And in worship, what we're doing right now is we are together and we are rehearsing that music. Now, we've been talking about the fact that there's a kind of melodic arc to this music. You know, if you listen to good music, don't get my kids and me started on this topic, but if you listen to good music, it's got melody, and, and it's got melody that goes somewhere. There's, there's movement, and there's kind of an arc in melody, and there's a melodic arc to the music of life in God's presence, Life for God's purposes. And we learned last week that that music, that kind of melodic arc, it always begins with God's call. There's this eternal song of God's own being that sets our instruments vibrating. It spoke things into existence. It calls to us still, simply to exist as a rational being, is already to be summoned by God to worship him. Everything begins with God's call. That's where the melody begins, but there's a lot more to the music. And so we're talking about kind of the, the arc. Well, I want to come to the second part of the music today. The, you know, it begins with the call. We are called. We talked about that last week. But there's a second and third and fourth and fifth thing that happened in this ark. And to, to get at it, I want, to, I want to look at this ancient rehearsal. This is what this is. It's a, it's a worship service. It's an ancient rehearsal. There are a lot of strange instruments here. I suppose you're probably glad that I'm not up here doing what these you know, Levites used to do. It was kind of a messy business. These are some strange instruments for, for rehearsing, but I think it's a recognizable melody because if you look at the three offerings that happen, and there are, you know, these three offerings happen in other places in the Old Testament, um, there's what's called a sin offering, and then there's what's called a burnt offering, and then there's what are called peace offerings. And so after Moses calls, and that's interesting, he calls Aaron and his sons, that's how things start. You go through these three offerings. There's a sin offering, burnt offering, peace offerings. And I want to just give you the three C words, you know, after a call. I'm going to give you three C words that kind of correspond. The sin offering is for cleansing. That burnt offering, as we'll talk about next week, is to consecrate the lives of God's people, to to dedicate their whole lives to the Lord. And then, of course, the peace offerings are about communion with God. We're going to actually eat part of that offering with the the devouring fire of God's presence. So we have you know, sin offering, burn offering, peace offerings, cleansing, consecration, and communion. And I'd like to point out that the sequence of these three offerings and the details of each offering really do matter. Now, I know this is probably, this is, Leviticus is the graveyard of Bible reading plans, right? You, you know, you're doing fine through the Exodus. You're almost dead by the time you're done with the tabernacle. You're completely burnt out by the time you get to the end of the you know, offerings and sacrifices. But it's actually some beautiful stuff here because the details matter. There's a reason why the sin offering is first. There's a reason why cleansing is first. And the details of the sin offering show the meaning, what it's actually doing. You'll notice that the sin offering of the three is by far the bloodiest of the offerings. The blood of the sin offering is presented to Aaron. And you'll notice, in if you look at verse 9... He pours out the blood. So he's got a lot of blood. This isn't just like a little sprinkling of blood. This is like a basin of blood. There's a lot of blood here. It is the only of the three offerings that involves the base of the altar. So on top of the altar is kind of the the fiery cloud. And then, you know, you move down to the sides of the altar and at the base of the altar, the farthest away from God's, you know, kind of glory cloud, fiery presence, he throws that blood far away from God at the base of the altar and then you'll notice in verse 11 that the flesh and the skin of this burnt offering, what happens to them? They don't even get to stay in God's camp. They're taken outside the camp, and they are burned in, in, in consuming fire. So this, this, this bloody offering that involves, you know, distance and removal, we could say a kind of alienation from God, it actually makes a shocking statement. I mean, I've, I've grown up as a Christian. I've heard this stuff for, you know, going on, four and a half decades, I guess, and, and, and I, even I was shocked this week because I actually thought about what this is saying because what this sin offering is saying, what God is saying to his people through this sin offering is, your sin, your sin, your disobedience, your transgression of my law, it has forfeited your right to live. Your sin... All that stuff you don't think is a big deal in your life, but I see as the all-holy God. I know your inmost heart. I know every thought, motive, and intent of your heart. And those things that are against my perfection, they're against my holiness, they're against my goodness, they require that your lifeblood be poured out and that you be driven from my presence and destroyed. I hate evil. All that is evil, I want it driven from my presence and destroyed. That is what perfect goodness, that's how it responds to sin. That's pretty shocking stuff. You have forfeited your right to live. That's the first thing you face in this rehearsal. But I think if those details are kind of shocking, I don't think it's any less scandalous in our modern ears, the statement of authority in the very idea of sin. Because for God to say to people, your sin against me has forfeited your right to live, There's 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 a statement of authority behind that very idea that there is this thing called sin. And this is the statement of authority in the sin offering, and it's really shocking stuff. God is saying, your right to live, your right to live, ultimately turns on your conformity or your non-conformity to my will. That is some pretty strong stuff to say. If anybody ever said that to you on earth, they are blaspheming. They are arrogating to themselves that which only God can say. But God is saying to his people, your right to live, it turns on whether you conform or do not conform to my will. That is just, it's strong. Because we're facing here ultimate authority. It's hard to imagine ultimate authority. Because every authority that you confront on earth If it's, you know, healthy authority and it's not pretending to be God, there's always something you can appeal to. There's always some authority over that authority. That authority got their authority from somewhere. And so, you know, we don't think of these like strong, absolute, ultimate statements like, you know, your very right to exist turns on whether you're conforming to the will of this authority. But ultimate authority can say that. God is ultimate authority. His authority is not derived. He didn't get his authority from somewhere. His authority is just simply in himself. And he has that authority over us by virtue of the fact that we are created by him it's not appealable authority either you't if if you don't like something that God you know decides to do there, there's no like you know supreme court to kind of go to to you know see if you can wiggle out of this. He is the ultimate authority that is that is right here in the sin offering daniel uh, the prophet Daniel said this to King Belshazzar you know Belshazzar. His, one of his ancestors had, had taken all these golden and silver vessels out of God's temple in Jerusalem and brought them into the house of their gods there in Babylon. And one night, you remember the story, Belshazzar was having this drunken party, and you know, he decides he's going to bring all these vessels of gold and silver that belong to Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's going to bring them into his you know, banquet house, and he's going to start drinking, you know, taking shots with these gold and silver vessels in praise of his Babylonian gods of woodstone and silver and so on, and the prophet Daniel comes in and he, he has a one-liner when he rebukes King Belshazzar. He says, the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. God has numbered your kingdom and he has finished it because the God in whose hand is your very breath and who holds all of your ways you have not honored him. Very strong, ultimate authority, even over the kings of the earth. I want to ask you guys, really, is this just repugnant? Doesn't this kind of thing justify the, you know, descriptions of God in popular culture as, you know, he's egotistical, he's capricious, he's bloodthirsty? I want to step back, I want to listen to the music for a minute, and I want to listen to how this little melodic theme here in the, blood, uh, in the sin offering, how that melodic theme echoes a major earlier movement in the music and how it anticipates another major climactic movement that is coming in the music. Just kind of hear some wider reverberations for a minute as we try to kind of get our breath back from what God is saying here. I want to think about something this little melodic theme echoes from from earlier in the music. I want to think back to Passover because Israel's very existence as a nation began with a lamb giving its life blood. You guys remember this story, of course. God's going to redeem his firstborn out of Egypt by killing all the firstborn in Egypt. And he provides this lamb that if the family takes a lamb, slays it, takes its blood and puts it over the door, on the doorpost and over the, on the lintel over the door, that will mark out their home as covered by God, and the angel of death, when it kills the firstborn, will pass over that house from which we get the name of the feast. And so, you know, anytime Israel is killing a, a, an animal in worship, there is a, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a remembering of the fact that an animal sacrifice was there at the very beginning, the night we became a nation, the night we were broken out of that slave, that death sort of death camp experience in, in Pharaoh's under Pharaoh's dominion, and I'd like you to think about the fact that that what we call the Paschal Lamb, that the Passover Lamb, that was also a statement of God's authority, wasn't it? Because what God said to Israel that night, as He passed over them, covered by the blood of the Passover Lamb, what God was saying to His people that night was, "Your right to live is ultimately determined not by you as slaves." Not by Pharaoh as your master. Your right to live is determined by me. I set the terms of life and death. You don't. Pharaoh doesn't. Pharaoh may say, who's the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh will know my sovereignty. God said that night. I determine that you will live. And nothing you can say as slaves, nothing Pharaoh can sl- say as your slave master can, can, can thwart my verdict. I determine your right to live. That is actually, as the Passover shows, so very freeing. Because if you really think about the alternative to that, if God does not, if God is not the one who says, I determine your right to live, I justify your existence. If if God doesn't say that, what are the alternatives, beloved? And I don't think we think this through sometimes in our modern world, <laughs> for all of our enlightenment, sometimes we can be very blind. What are the alternatives? If God does not cast that verdict, I justify you. I decide who lives and dies. I decide whether you can stand before me and your existence is has worth and value and, and will continue. If God doesn't say that, guess what? One of your alternatives is you've got to justify your own existence. You have to just assert in this world it's good that I exist. I should be. I matter. I have worth. People shouldn't oppress me. I have value. You can assert those things, but if there's no God whose verdict matters, you can can just try to justify your own existence. You can just claim that your existence is justified, that you ought to be, you ought to live, you ought to be valued, you ought whatever. But then, of course, and this is very sobering, you have to defend that claim. Against all the other people and creatures in the world who actually have no reason, if you really think about it, they have no reason to honor that claim of yours unless it's in their own best interest. It's certainly not a God given right to live, right to exist. You don't have any inherent dignity. You can say, I have inherent dignity, my existence is justified, I I have worth, I ought to be, I should live. I, my, my life should be respected. You can claim that. But if there's no higher authority that has claimed that about you, then you can just you say it on your own, and you have to defend that then against all these other creatures who would say the same about themselves and have no real reason, no inherent reason, no God-given reason to justify you. And so that's the other alternative, isn't it? You can just try to justify your own existence, you know, prove your worth, establish your right to be, But if you can't do that, you know, the alternative to that is somebody else will have to do it. That's the other alternative. Somebody else can be the one who decides you should be or you should not be. Someone else in this world has got to give you a place, assign you worth, say it's good that you exist. And either way, whether it's you trying to justify yourself or, you know, somebody else being in a position where they make the call, Either way, the absence of divine authority means that you and I are frighteningly dependent on the power differentials of the various people giving the verdict on my existence. There is no authority above the various powers in the world and their verdicts on who ought to be and who ought not to be. It is not God who justifies in such a world. Self can try to justify the society can justify or not justify, but there is no God who justifies if God does not have this ultimate authority. And God said to sinners, God said to those who had no, you know, claims in themselves to his grace, to sinners and to slaves who were nobodies, they were at the bottom of the food chain, sort of in, you know, political terms. He said, it's my verdict alone that counts. It's my verdict that counts. And he made a way for them to be Justified to have standing with him. Despite all their weakness, despite the fact that they were worthless in the eyes of Pharaoh, except as a labor force, despite all their unworthiness, their sin, their hard-heartedness that would later emerge in the wilderness, despite all of that, God justified them. He said, you have standing with me. You will be sons and daughters of the living God. And every single sin offering in every worship rehearsal after that, repeated that verdict of God. I, who have the authority of life and death, I declare by my grace alone, you shall live. You shall live. Now that, of course, that Passover movement and the sin offering movement, that does obviously anticipate a much more glorious movement to come. You know, we know that's pointing to what we, Jesus Christ, our Savior, you know, And I want you to think about Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John said. The the, the liberating verdict, God's verdict, you shall live by my grace alone. I justify you. That liberating verdict is never at the cost of God's justice, is it? God doesn't sort of just wink at sin. He doesn't set aside his justice. Life has been forfeited. Life must be forfeited. God's justice will not ignore that. But of course, the whole good news of the Bible is that God provides the way. He provides the way for his justice to be satisfied through a substitute. You know, when you put your, head, your hands on the head of the the sin offering, and you confess your sin over it, and then that thing bleeds out in front of you, that lifeblood is poured out at the base of God's altar, that is God providing a way that his justice, his righteous verdict about your sin, you have forfeited your life because you have not conformed to his will, that verdict has been answered, that justice has been satisfied by a substitute. It's the exchange, my sin on the lamb, the lamb dies that I might live. You know, that's the bigger story of Exodus and Leviticus as a whole, isn't it? You think about, in just sweeping terms, Exodus and Leviticus, the two, second and third book of the Bible. You know, Exodus is about, is about God calling his people out of slavery. And then he, he, he shows up on a mountain, and there's this frightening glory cloud. But then, at the end of Exodus, after they build the tabernacle, where does that glory cloud go? It comes down off the mountain to live among the people. God's come to live with us. But Leviticus opens up with a really frightening question. It's great that God, in all of his holiness and power and majesty, has come down to live among us. He lives in his house now. Can we go into his house? How are we going to live with him? How are we going to actually be in fellowship with the glory cloud? And Leviticus is all about how God, starting at the base of the altar with the sin offering, he he, he begins to help his people make the ascent to live with him in his glory cloud, to be actually partakers, friends in the presence of his holiness. Leviticus, the whole essence of Leviticus, if you get past all the crazy, gory details, is that God is bringing us into his house. He not only calls us to come, you know, God can call all day, but we can't come unless he makes a way. And he has made a way, he's made a way for us to come, and the climax of that is Jesus Christ. God himself, just astonishing grace. The God of that glory cloud takes flesh. Why does he take flesh? Because he needs blood. So he can pour it out in our place. And he is driven outside the camp. He's crucified on a hill outside the city. He is consumed by the fiery wrath of God's justice. And so we come to those beautiful words of the writer of Hebrews. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Every priest in the Old Testament stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. You had to have rivers of blood in the Old Testament, but the blood of the Lamb of God, it washed away all of your sins for all time. There will never be another sacrifice. There is no more sin offering. It is finished. And the New Testament is very clear that this cross of Christ, this sin offering that Jesus became, it doesn't just give pardon. It gives Passover. It doesn't just give us forgiveness with the Father. It gives us freedom from death and the devil. Because now the accuser, now that sin offering, that That sin offering that does what it's supposed to do, that actually washes away sins, God is satisfied with Christ. The result of that is that the accuser of your souls has no hold on your existence anymore. He can come to God and say, That man, that woman should not exist. That That has been answered. God is satisfied with Christ. Nothing can shake that verdict, nothing can impeach that justification. Nothing can touch your destiny because the sin offering has been effective. The Lamb of God has been slain. And God, who has ultimate authority, and it's unchallengeable by the powers of darkness even, he has said, by my grace alone, you will live. You will live. You are clean. And so Paul tells us in Colossians, the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of the heavenly places, they have been stripped of their weapons and they have been shamed. There is a washed humanity... God is his people. God is his human race. And his verdict is final. They are forgiven. They are loved. They will reign in my kingdom. They're free. And Pharaoh has nothing to say about it. That's why the ancient hymn, Rock of Ages, says... Singing to God, the rock of ages, be of sin, the double cure, the double cure. Fleming Rutledge has pointed this out so beautifully in her book on the atonement, because sin is two things. It's both guilt before God, and it's a power that enslaves. And for our guilt before God, Jesus is the atoning victim. And for the power of sin and of death and of the devil, Jesus is not the atoning victim for that side of sin. He is the almighty victor. He has stripped the evil one of his accusations and his weapons. So let's just reflect for a moment or two about what this means. What's the contemporary relevancy of this? First of all, the relevancy for worship. This is why it is not accidental that in our worship service here, we get cleansing very early in the service. True Christian worship that understands what's going on with Jesus and his sacrifice needs to foreground the whole matter of cleansing. I think it is actually, I'm going to be a little bit strong here, I think it is actually a significant problem in modern evangelical Christian worship that there is no confession of sin, there is no absolution, there's not even any clear identification of the fact that there might be a sin problem when we all enter into God's presence. Now, we don't need Jesus to die for us again, but it's very, very important for us to realize we walk into the presence of the almighty, thrice-holy God, to, around whom the seraphim, in all the, perf- all the glory of their, you know, how will we describe the seraphim? They are holy. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You think about walking into that presence of that God. We are not here to be entertained. We are here to worship. And there is a sin barrier. And just, you know, to to, to confess our sins and and seek, you know, for God afresh to, to, you know, Speak over us his word of cleansing and mercy and grace through Jesus. I mean, that's a fairly big deal. That's something that should be foregrounded in worship. That does bring a sobriety with it, but it also brings such a joy. It's interesting to me because it's not just about, you know, reminding us of our need of cleansing. It's reminding us of God's provision of it. And it's been very strange to me over the years. I've said this to you before. The number one thing about this way of worshiping that I've heard people comment over the years that they find just so refreshing is the weekly absolution more than anything else, to hear, not because I have any authority, God has authority to just hear somebody reassert his verdict over you. Your sins are forgiven. You're free. You're washed. You are loved. That needs to be part of worship. How about for life, though? I just want to offer two quick points of relevancy. I want to encourage you guys as we think about the sin offering, the cleansing of God, Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. Number one, I really want to encourage you guys that have kids. Teach your children about justification. Teach your children you are God's creature made in his image. You don't need to justify your existence. Your existence is justified by the simple fact that God made you. Ah, but Daddy, I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. You're a way worse sinner than you know, my son, my daughter. But you're a sinner whose sins, all of them, are forgiven through Jesus. The Lamb is your righteousness. God loves you, and He will never stop loving you because of Jesus. Why is it so important to teach your kids about justification? Isn't that just a big theological word, you know? I mean, is it any big deal? It's a big deal, because you know what I see as I look around the world today, and this isn't just a problem among young people. I see a lot of people trying to justify their existence. A lot of people trying to somehow assert that I, sh- you know, I, there's a reason for me. I, I have significance. I, ha- I have worth. We have the privilege in the church of Jesus Christ of raising generation after generation of humbly confident people. Humble, yes. Humbled. Because I'm a sinner. But confident. Yea, bold in Christ. I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to justify my existence. As I go out into the world, I'm already justified. I already have significance. I already have standing with God, and what else matters? Who who, with Standing with who else could even possibly matter if I have standing with God? It is no one else's prerogative to justify or not to justify my existence. In fact, it's in no one else's power. It's one of the most horrible things that can happen to you in a relationship is when you're trying to get somebody else to justify your existence. You can't really deal with yourself if this person doesn't affirm you, doesn't approve you, doesn't... That's called codependency. It is living death when you see it. And we're just freed from all that. Nobody else has any power to give me that thing I crave, which is to know that I am, and it's good that I am, and I am loved despite my unworthiness, and God is for me. I am forgiven, and I am loved by God, man. That is the basis of humble confidence in our children and in all of us. Teach your children about justification. The second thing I'd say is equally practical. Learn, learn and practice the power of forgiveness. Learn and practice the power of forgiveness. And there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of scuttlebutt right now about what's going on in our society. I'll tell you what I find really alarming, and I know a lot of you do too. We are living in a society right now where increasingly some people think other people shouldn't exist. You think we're immune to this as North Americans. You know, those primitive societies, there are a lot of non-primitive societies that have decided that millions shouldn't exist. And you can hear the rhetoric in our society now, those people don't even deserve to be. We can't really have a good society until the scapegoats are driven out and destroyed. You start you, this. This stuff is it's in the air now. The untouchables. And the Church of Jesus Christ is the only institution on the planet that has a gospel of a God-supplied scapegoat. Do you realize this? There is not another religion in the entire world, certainly no ideology, no philosophy, that has a God-supplied scapegoat. God has visited His ultimate justice on His Son. That relativizes all other verdicts, and it means there is no more scapegoating. There's only one. And what I want to ask you guys, I know you believe that, are we in the body of Christ, living together as if that is so. There is something immensely powerful about the daily practice. It doesn't happen a lot of times, and the reason it doesn't happen is because of just pride. But there is something immensely powerful about practicing, saying something like this to one another over and over again. I ask for your forgiveness because the Lamb of God was slain for my sin. And to say to one another in response, I forgive that sin because it is covered by His blood. Do you realize how much drama that eliminates? I watch Christians fight For days, weeks, years, go to their grave fighting. I mean, it's as if there's not a sin offering. The Lamb of God is slain. I ask your forgiveness for his sake. I forgive you because he gave his blood. If we can practice that in the church, dear saints, that will change the world. That will change the world. It will because the music's playing. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for the Lamb of God and that we have peace with you through his blood, through his righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that you will teach us to live in that peace one with another and to model that for a needy generation. In Jesus' good name, amen.